Uh, one of the things I've done quite a bit of this year is prepare couples for marriage, uh, mainly people from here. Uh, and uh, part of my wedding or marriage preparation with, married, with couples about to get married is I uh, do a course with them and talk about expectations for marriage. And one of the quotes I use, you'll see it on the top of your outline, if you look on your outline, the first point, one of the quotes I say is, every disappointment involves an unmet expectation. Uh, and so you can hopefully you can work out the point of that, but the point is we often get disappointed not because of what actually happens, but because we hope something different would happen. And so what happens in marriage is if the husband or, or wife thinks that the uh, person they're marrying is going to fulfil all their needs and all their hopes and all that sort of thing, then they're going to be disappointed. But the problem is not actually with the person they're marrying, the problem is with them, uh, that they had unrealistic expectations. Politicians know this. Before they have big presidential debates, a lot of what the, presidential, well, the candidates' helpers and media people do is they go out there and they try and lower people's expectations about their candidate. Because the idea is that if, if, people, if, you meet your, if you get above what people are expecting, people think you've won. And so sometimes it's really bad for the guys who are actually good at debating because people are expecting them to win, so it doesn't matter what they do, they, people go, oh, yeah, but he was always like that. Whereas there are some candidates, including in the current presidential race, I think, uh, who if they just manage to get to the lectern, people go, wow, he's exceeded our expectations. Isn't that amazing? He's, able to, he's been able to introduce himself and he hasn't got his name wrong. You know, that sort of idea. People are amazed that they've even managed that. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, what you see in Mark's Gospel and what we've seen, if you remember back last year and then earlier last year, what we've seen in Mark's Gospel is that a lot of Jesus' teaching was about helping his disciples change their expectations of who he was and what he had come to do. They had these distorted expectations and he was trying to get them to get their expectations right. But more than that, he was trying to get them to get their expectations of what it meant to be his disciple right. He wanted them to have the right expectations. See, they had seen Jesus do incredible miracles. If you just flick back from where we are in Mark 9 now, remember, he's done most of the incredible miracles by this point, and they have seen just about all of them. So he, he's calmed a storm, he's healed a paralysed man, he's walked on water, he's fed 4,000 people with a few loaves and fishes, he's fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. And so they've, they've seen all these miracles. So their expectations are like up to the roof. And more than that, they have heard all the teaching. So most people had heard just sort of one sermon of Jesus. They'd been there for it all. They'd heard everything that he'd said. And so they finally worked out by this point that Jesus is what they call the Messiah, God's promised king who'd come to bring salvation. And so their expectations, if you put yourself into the shoes of the disciples, their expectations are all about glory and thrones and kingdoms and power. But Jesus has been trying to get them to see, and he's been saying it over and over and over to them, trying to get them to see that that is not the type of king he is, at least not at his first coming. He is the suffering Messiah. That's what he is. And more than that, he's trying to get them to see that following him will involve suffering. And this was a concept they weren't that keen on. Uh, he, he, Jesus said, you remember back in Mark 8, if you want to follow me, he said, you will need to give up your life for me and the gospel. That's what it is to be my disciple. You will have to take up your cross if you are going to follow me. Whoever saves his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Glory will come, Jesus keeps telling them, but only after suffering. But the disciples just couldn't get that yet. Just sort of wasn't in their way of understanding things. And so today, Jesus continues that job of trying to correct their expectations. So let's get into it. Open up Mark 9. Look at verse 30 there. And it says, Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. Now we could just skip over that as sort of irrelevant travel plans, but it's actually quite important what he's saying at that point. Up until now, Jesus has been mainly up in the north. If you imagine a map of Israel, he's been mainly up in the top of the country where there are a lot fewer people. So he's been up in the north, he's been up around Galilee, but this is now saying what he's going to do is he's going to head south through Galilee and that means he is on his way to Jerusalem. And that is really, really important because it's in Jerusalem that it's all going to happen. Jerusalem is where the climax of the story is going to be to the whole climax of his life. And it says there, if you notice, that he didn't want anyone to know that he was going through. So it's like he was travelling at night. He was avoiding the crowds now. Whereas before, if you remember, he's been seeking out the crowds often. He goes to where the crowds are to teach them. So you've got to ask, why does he want to travel in secret? Well, the first reason could be that he's done everything he wants to do up there. He's he's fed the 5,000. He's done all his miracles. He's walked on water. The time for the crowds is over. He doesn't want to get waylaid. He doesn't want to get stopped going where he's got to go. Secondly, it could be actually this doesn't want crowds anymore. He doesn't want crowds to follow him because what happens is generally they try and make him a king. When the crowds get him, they want to sort of say, you're the Messiah, let's put you up on a pedestal. And he's saying, that's not my path. Thirdly, he probably didn't want the Pharisees worrying him anymore, didn't want them following him and causing trouble and stopping him getting to Jerusalem. But the main reason why he travelled in secret at this point is at the start of verse 31 there. If you look there, it says, for or because... He was teaching his disciples. See, what happens is there's a change in Mark's gospel at this point. Before now, it's been all about the crowds. He's been teaching everyone. Now he's saying, now I'm about to go to Jerusalem, to the climax of the story. Now I'm going to focus in on teaching and training and equipping my disciples. Now is the time for preparing them. So look at verse 31. It says, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. I don't think that's all he taught them, because the trip was several days, and uh, if that's all he taught them, then it was a very short teaching time, and the rest of the time they were doing not very much at all. It's like that's the summary. That is the essence of what Jesus wanted to teach his disciples. He was trying to get them to see what he was here to do. He wasn't leading them to Jerusalem to take up residence in the temple or in the palace, which is what they wanted for Jesus. He was going to Jerusalem to die. It's interesting the way, if you look there again, the way he stresses the betrayal. Do you see that there? The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. Uh, That often makes people think that what he's doing there is he's getting them ready for Judas. He's getting them ready for the fact that one of their own is going to desert them and hand Jesus over and and, and do all of that thing there. But the actual word there is delivered over. So literally it's the Son of Man is being delivered over into the hands of men. 
Uh, and when that language is used in the Bible, whenever it talks about someone being delivered over into the hands of men, usually it's talking about what God does. So I think what's actually going on here is he is focusing on the fact that this is all God's doing. It's what God is doing. And the point he's making is God is in control of this. God the Father who holds the Son and all of us in his hand, God is engineering events so that Jesus will be delivered over into the hands of men. It's a reminder that Jesus' death was on the one hand the act of evil men like Judas and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Romans, but it was also always God's plan. God was at work to do it because that's how he would save the world. In any event, Jesus is explaining to them, I have to die in Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, but after that I'll rise three days later. Now, because we have the benefit of history, I think, is, is there anyone here who's come tonight and doesn't know the end of the story? Doesn't know that Jesus was going to die in the end and then rise again? Whether you believe it or not, if you're not a believer, but you know the story, you know what's coming. Remember, put yourself in the disciples' shoes, they didn't know the end of the story. This is sort of the second or the third time they've heard about it. So we think, of course we know what Jesus is saying. He's going to die, he's going to rise again, and that's the most wonderful news in all of history. This is how he will save humanity, by dying for our sin, and he's going to rise to life and be the first fruits of the resurrection, and he's going to give us the hope of eternal life. We know what he's saying, and we praise God, and we sing hymns about it and all that sort of thing. But to the disciples, this was just nonsense. What Jesus was saying was nonsense. They just couldn't get it. They were like, hang on, you're the Messiah. And the Messiah is meant to rule. How can the Messiah be delivered over to death? It's just not the way it's meant to work. So they still didn't get it. Look at verse 32. It says, but they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to, to ask him. It's hard to know what they didn't understand. I mean, the words are pretty clear. I, I think it was more that they didn't want to understand on one part and more that it was just so far out of the realms of their possible understandings that they couldn't get it and I wonder if they were actually starting to get it but just sort of didn't really want to think about that whole death and suffering bit but as I say I think the key issue was this is just not how it's meant to be this is not what's meant to happen to our Messiah in any event you notice that they were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant do you remember what happened to Peter last time he asked Jesus a question about him going and dying and rising again? Peter said, hey, Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. So last time he asked a question, he got called the devil. So understandably, he was a bit reticent about asking again. Uh, but I think actually, like all of us, it's sort of that thing where they would rather remain ignorant than show that they are ignorant. Do you know what I mean? We all do this. We'd actually all put on, rather put on a front that we understand it than ask a question and look silly. It's called sinful pride. That's what it is. I find it all the time myself, in myself and in Christians where we don't get it, we don't understand it. Instead of just asking a question, we go, no, I don't want to look silly. I don't want anyone else to think I don't get it, so I won't ask a question. I think there was some of that in the disciples. It's much better to remain ignorant than show other people that I'm ignorant. It's actually the opposite way around. But anyway, if we move on, the next little story shows just how little they had understood because if you pick up from verse 33 they get to Capernaum they stop in a house probably the same house where the, the hole in the roof hopefully they'd fixed it by now and Jesus started teaching them some more but he starts with a question look at verse 33 he asked them what were you arguing about on the way now just remember what had Jesus been telling them he'd been telling them I have to die I have to suffer 
And then he says, what were you guys talking about? Verse 34, they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Do you see the contrast? Jesus is saying, I have to suffer and die. They're having an argument about who gets to sit at Jesus' right hand and who gets someone to give them grapes while they're lying on the couch. That's the difference. And Jesus, I think the but they were silent is because they were ashamed. They were ashamed of what they'd been talking about. Uh, And so Jesus takes a moment to teach them about true greatness and here's the central point of this passage. So look at verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's one of the most famous things Jesus says, isn't it? You know, even if you're not a Christian, even if you've never come to church, you know Jesus says stuff about serving people. And Jesus says, first shall be last, and last shall be first, and all that sort of thing. In that society, and in most societies actually, the one who serves others is considered inferior. And here in Australia, we like to pretend we're a classless society. It's just not true. You you don't see see people who say, I want to be the cleaner. You say, no, no, I want to earn enough money so I can pay someone else to clean for me. That's the way it works in all societies. People want to be the great one. And great ones have other people serving them. They don't serve other people. But Jesus says, no, no, no. If you want to be great, then this is what you have to do. You must excel in serving other people. That's what you've got to get good at. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't say, don't desire to be great. He doesn't say to them, you won't be great in the kingdom of heaven no one will be great in the kingdom of heaven he says no 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 what I will do is redefine greatness see the disciples were all on about what do other people think of me will people put me on a pedestal they're all on about glory and power and being first they want other people to think I'm important I'm one of Jesus's special ones that is the human condition from the earliest age we want to be first I don't think I've got three kids And I didn't have to teach them to want to be first. They took it on naturally. It's just the way it is. We want other people to like us and respect us and honour us and put us up. But Jesus says that is not the way the kingdom of God works. It's totally different. If you want to be first in the kingdom of God, then you put yourself down. You put yourself last now. For Jesus, the road to glory was through suffering and serving others, even to the point of laying down his life for us. And he says, it is the same for you. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want glory now, if you want to be respected and glorified now, if you want to be first, then Jesus says, go find someone else to follow. You're following the wrong king. You're following the wrong saviour, in the wrong place. Because the disciple of Jesus suffers now. We sacrifice ourselves now in the service of other people. That is what it means to follow the crucified Saviour. That is the most glorious thing we can do. Give ourselves up in the service of others. And then Jesus does something strange in verse 36. Look at it with me. He takes a child. This was possibly one of the disciples' children. Some of the disciples were married and had kids. It could have been Peter's child, for all we know. Possibly it was a child of the family who owned the house. We just don't know. But he takes a child and he places the child in front of them all. I don't know how the kid felt about it, but anyway. And then Jesus deliberately takes the child in his arms. Now, we think 
Isn't that lovely? Isn't that nice? And we get sort of those pictures on the wall with Jesus and little sheep and children around him and and looking very soft and gentle and always with light brown hair and looking French or something like that. But anyway, (laughs) in that culture, the disciples would have been shocked. Men did not do that. In our culture, we think it's normal. This morning, I had to lead the kids' song at the 10.30 service because I gave Sarah the morning off. It was the biggest mistake I've made in a long time. (laughs) And a few people came up to me afterwards and said, I'm going to give more because now I know why we have a children's worker. That was the the response of people, Sarah, you'll be pleased to know. But, uh, you see, we're used to grown men hugging kids and doing kids' songs and all that sort of thing. Not as badly as me, but we're used to it. But the point is, in their culture, that was beneath a man. It was actually just not right. Certainly a great man like Jesus should not even have children in his presence. That's why, do you know that other moment in that other story in the Gospels where people bring their children to Jesus? You remember that one? And the disciples tell them to get lost. And we're horrified. We think, how oh, those disciples are dumb and rude. But actually, in that culture, the disciples were doing the right thing. Everyone else thought Jesus was dumb. The disciples were doing the right thing because children were meant to be seen and not heard. When I said that at the morning congregation, there are a few amens from some of the parents there. But, but the point is Jesus changes that. He, he sort of turns it on his head. You see, Jesus welcomes the child, which is, by the way, why we do so much for children in our church. Uh, sometimes people come to me, not at this congregation, but at our other congregations, and say, why do we have to have the kids in church? They're so noisy and I can't hear and all that sort of thing. And I think, you haven't got it. The gospel is for such as these. The gospel is for the little children as much as it is for anyone else. But here, Jesus is actually not so much talking about little children. He's using the little child as a, as a visual picture, as a metaphor. He's acting it out for them. The great one is becoming a servant and welcoming the most insignificant person in their culture, which is the little child. The point is that the great one is willing to serve everyone. There is no one they consider beneath them. It's funny how quickly we forget this, isn't it? Because we would all actually rather be served than serve. I haven't met a yet, yet met a person who naturally thinks, I would rather be a servant than be served. We're naturally, sinfully ingrained to want to be served rather than serve. And sadly, sadly, the church regularly loses sight of this. The history of the church is of Christians forgetting this, and you see it all the time in the way we dress up our ministers and our bishops to look like kings, and we give them special seats up the front of the church to sit on, when actually they should sit in the lowly seat. That's what Jesus would have done. See, when we stand before God, I think we will get a shock at who is great in the kingdom of heaven. When we stand there on the last day, when Jesus returns on the judgment day, we will get a shock at who the people are in the special seats. Because on the one hand, it won't be the people our world thinks is successful and great. However, our world is judging success at a particular time. It won't be the popular people. It won't be the people with the biggest houses. It won't be the people with the highest paying jobs. But we know that. We're Christians. But it won't even be the people we Christians thought were great. And this is picking up on what Matt said before. It won't be the men who preach to thousands. It won't be the men who have TV shows at 4am on a Sunday morning. It won't be the people with mega churches. It won't be the show ponies. It won't be the glory seekers who are great in the kingdom of heaven. It will be the humble servants who quietly got on with the job 
of serving people in the name of Jesus. So I'll tell you who will be first in the kingdom of heaven. It will be the lady who taught scripture for 30 years, despite the fact the kids made her life hell every Wednesday morning between 9.30 and 10. And if you, like me, have to repent of the way you treated your scripture teacher, then you can join me afterwards in a time of prayer. Do you understand my point? It, it, It will be the mother who taught her kids to love Jesus and modeled to them the way to serve other people. It'll be the people who quietly, without fanfare, got on just with sharing Jesus with people, loving people, cooking meals for people, even though no one ever saw it, no one ever put them up on a pedestal, no one ever gave them the glory. The great ones will be the people who quietly and sacrificially just walked in the footsteps of Jesus. That is who will be first in the kingdom of heaven. But now Jesus shifts his focus a little bit. So come back with me to the passage. He keeps the image of the child, the child's still standing there, but he takes a new tack in verse 37. I find a lot of people don't understand this verse. They can't work out what he's talking about. So we'll work at it together. Look with me. He says, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. What he's doing here is he's sort of moving from what it looks like to give service to what it looks like to receive service in a strange sort of way. If we look at the second half first, because that's easier, he's saying when a person welcomes Jesus, they are welcoming the one who sent him, which is, of course, God. We know this, don't we? We know it, of course. But a person's standing before God is on what basis? It's on the basis of their response to Jesus. That is the only way to be made right with God. There's no other way to know God than through his son, Jesus. That's why all other religions are false roads, dead ends. There is nothing worthwhile in them. That's what Jesus is saying. As he says in John 13, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying there, is, there are no other ways. The only way to know the Father is to know me, that is Jesus. If we want people to come to know God, if we want people to know the salvation he offers, then the only way is to tell them about Jesus. But now, back to the first half of verse 37, it's sort of like, just as you know God, you receive God by receiving Jesus, well, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. What's Jesus saying there? Some people say Jesus is saying your attitude to little children determines your attitude to Jesus. I don't think so. That sort of contradicts the rest of the New Testament. Uh, But what happens is as you go on in the rest of the chapter, and we're going to see it next week and the week after, we'll see that actually he's sort of shifting the metaphor and the little ones he's talking about here are not every little child in the world, but are actually his disciples. And actually in Aramaic, sorry for being a bit nerdy with you on a December 27, but the language Jesus probably spoke in, there's actually a clever play on words because the word for servant is the same as the word for child. And so it's like Jesus is getting them to look at the child and he's saying to the disciples, you, my servants, you are the little children. This child is not just symbolic of the fact that you should be willing to serve everyone. This child is also symbolic of you, which is a massive theme in the New Testament, isn't it? To be a disciple of Jesus is to be like a little child. You will go out as my humble little children. And here's the amazing thing he says. When people welcome you, as a disciple of Jesus, they are welcoming Jesus. And that to, as they welcome Jesus, they are welcoming God. 
See, sometimes people say, I want to follow Jesus, but I just don't want anything to do with other Christians. I want to say I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be a part of a church. I don't want to meet with God's people. Well, Jesus just sort of says, that's silly. You've totally missed the point. It's not possible. See, to accept Jesus involves accepting the little ones who come in his name. You see, our attitude to other believers shows our attitude to Jesus, shows our attitude to God. What we see in this passage is two related aspects of being a disciple of Jesus. The first is, if you want to follow Jesus, then there is no one who is too small, too insignificant, too poor, too lowly for you to serve. If you think I'm above them, I'm better than them, I, I don't, shouldn't waste my time with them, then you haven't understood Jesus. If you want to hang around with impressive people, no disrespect to the people gathered here, but if you want to hang around with impressive people, you haven't understood the gospel. If you want other people to think you're impressive, then you haven't understood the gospel. You're following the wrong saviour. Go find a different one. But unfortunately, he won't save you. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And what is good enough for our saviour and king is good enough for us. And in fact, if you want to be great, then you will serve even the little child. That's why the most important ministry, I think, in our church is teaching the little children about the gospel. There's nothing more important than that, far more important than what I do. I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, no. But secondly, to be a disciple of Jesus is to go out as his servant, as one of his little ones. And his point here is people's reaction to you as you share the message of Jesus is not about you. Their reaction to you shows their reaction to Jesus, which shows their reaction to God the Father. Some people will reject us and our message, but it's Jesus they are rejecting. But those who accept us and our message, they are accepting Jesus, and so they are finding God. So brothers and sisters, why don't we, for 2016, it's a bit scary, 2016, why don't we commit ourselves to seeking true greatness? Let's stop trying to be great in the eyes of the world, and let's try and be great in the kingdom of God. And how do we do that? By committing ourselves to serving other people. That's how we do it. And then by committing ourselves to sharing Jesus with other people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way we can meet Jesus in Mark's Gospel. And we thank you most of all that he was willing to give up his greatness to come and serve us even to the point of dying for us. And we pray that we might never lose sight of what he has done for us. But more than that, we pray that we might take up that challenge of being his disciples. And we would not seek after greatness in the eyes of the world, but instead we would seek after true greatness by putting ourselves last and serving even the little ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.